We'll begin today by, uh, first of all, it's Parshat Chukas, Chukat. This shir is sponsored by Aaron and Lillian Fuchs and Jason Fuchs, in memory of Aaron's father, Heinrich Fuchs, Chaim Shol ben Yitzchok Zichonah whose yard site is on the 12th of Tammuz. Parshat Chukat, we're going to talk about um, the sin of Moshe Rabbeinu. So it's a seminal story, an important story in the course of the earliest moments of Jewish history, as a result of which Moshe Rabbeinu, or so it would appear, as a result of which Moshe Rabbeinu was refused entry into the Promised Land. Um, I'm going to go over the very basic elements of the story. I don't want to go over it too, in too much detail, um, because as you will see, the Shia is not really about that. The, the shear is more about the consequences. The story is that Miriam, um, Moshe's brother, died. Oh, sorry, Moshe's sister died. Um, and she had been the source, the cause, the um, reason for which the Jewish nation had been given water over 40 years. In her merit, they had this rock that had traveled along with them which had been the source of water, some type of fountain had emerged out of the rock, it was miraculous. She dies, the rock ceases to give water. Okay, fair enough. Um, where's their water? They don't know. They're all very thirsty. They come to Moshe Rabbeinu, they complain. And he goes to God and he says, what should I do? And God says, well, find the rock, speak to it, and the rock will give water to you. He goes to the rock and he does what he'd originally done 40 years ago, he hit the rock, the rock gave water, and then God says to him, you did not sanctify my name, uh, you didn't do things properly, very unclear, very obscure, and um, Moshe Rabbeinu is left uh, in the wilderness, he dies in the wilderness, as does his brother Aaron, for having participated in the same event in a way that had dissatisfied God, and they do not lead the Jewish nation into the Promised Land. That I'm, I'm giving you, it's a summary of a summary. I'm not even giving you the story. I've dealt with this in a previous shir, I think more than once. Um, what I would like to do today is to address some of the tertiary questions. That means the supplementary questions regarding this story. But before I do that, let's deal with the main question, which is the question of Moshe Rabbeinu's sin. What did he do wrong? Okay, so let's start with the Akedat Yitzchak, Rabbi Isaac Arama, who is, as you know, an all-encompassing commentary. We've quoted him many times before. He says as follows, She'ela kasher v'chazaka b'chet osher Moshe Rabbeinu v'anasho. You should know something. There is, it's such a difficult question almost unanswerable. What is it that Moshe Rabbeinu, what did Moses do wrong that he deserved such a grievous punishment? In other words, we know Moshe Rabbeinu. If, we, if, if you had to give a short summary, an idea, present the personality of Moses to an audience that had never heard of him before, you'd never include this story because this doesn't really define him at all. Moses is a person who comes from a distinguished family and through thick and thin he has led the Jewish nation. He has been their advocate, he has been their leader, he's been their inspiration. He delivered the word and the message of God to them. This, if you want to understand the essence of Moses, that's who he is. This story really rankles, it doesn't make much sense. Because Moshe here is presented as somebody who'd done something terribly wrong, as a result of which he's given a punishment, which is the worst possible thing that could have happened to him. It's not a rap on the knuckles. He is told that his mission will not be fulfilled. He had the mission of taking the Jews out of Egypt, making sure they received the Torah, and then bringing them to the Holy Land. That was his mission. Mission not accomplished. He brought them out of Egypt. He made sure that they got the Torah. In fact, he shepherded them for 40 years, much longer than anyone had ever anticipated. And now he's not going to complete that mission. He is going to remain in the wilderness and someone else is going to bring them into the promised land. 
even though that is a feature of Moses' life, somehow it doesn't fit in with our picture of him. And this is what um, the Akedat Yitzchak says. It's a Mishnah in Kiddushin. The Mishnah in Kiddushin, uh, um, it's actually not a Mishnah, it's a Gemara. Gemara is, uh, Rabbi Yochanan is quoted as saying about a particular Mishnah in Kiddushin, Hare Shulchan, Vahare Bosar, Vahare Sakin Lefonenu. There is a table, there is the meat, and there is the knife in front of us, the Ein Lonu Polechal, and we still cannot eat. In other words, we have all the information that we need, all the details are there, but somehow it's not coherent in the sense that we can actually gain anything from it. There's no benefit to us from having all this information. We know the story. We know what happened. It's reported. It's recorded. And yet we don't have sufficient information that helps us understand what exactly happened. V'zeh, what does it mean? Ki mitzvot Hashem Moshe the commandment, the instruction to Moses is written in front of us, right there in the Torah. And the thing that he did is not hidden from us. We know exactly what he did. It's right there in front of us. And yet, from the great anger that God demonstrated as a result of what he did, in light of his instructions, we are shocked. <coughs> and we do not have an explanation that really explains to us exactly what it is that happened. Our ears can hear the story and still we are surprised. We're shocked at what happened. What did Moshe do that resulted in such a terrible punishment? Why would he have been prevented from fulfilling his mission, discharging his duty as the leader of the Jewish nation. And all the information we have is not sufficient to help us understand the answer to that question. Let's look at Shadal, Shlomo David, Shmuel David Luzzato, who was a 19th century Italian scholar, and he says something even stronger. He, how many sins did Moshe Rabbeinu commit? How many things did he do wrong? One would assume he did something wrong, right? Did he do many sins or one? One sin, right? Says Shadal, Moshe Rabbeinu chatachit echad. Moses sinned one time. Whatever he did wrong, that's what he did wrong. But if you look at the commentaries, you are presented with such a confused such a diverse picture that you may think he'd sinned 13 times. He counts 13 different um, sins that are recorded in the commentaries as to what it is that Moshe did. Every single one of the commentaries looking at the source in the Torah says, no, no, the other commentary got it wrong. I have the answers to what it is that Moshe Rabbeinu did. In other words, he didn't sin once, says Shadal. He sinned 13 times. How can that possibly be? I'm now going to do something which is essentially a survey of all the different opinions as to what it is that Moshe Rabbeinu did wrong. What was his primary sin in this story of Meimariva, of the, of the rock um, giving water after Miriam died? I've dealt with this in a previous year, in a previous year, I can't remember if it was last year, two years ago, three years ago, I dealt with this in a much more detailed way. I'm now going to do a survey, which is a very brief um, look at all the different opinions. Let's look first at the Pasuk, because that is the key. Moses and Aaron gathered together the community. If you look here in the Pasuk that I've printed in the source sheet, and by the way, those are listening online can get the source sheet from the website. The um, pasuk, which is quoted here, I have highlighted, not highlighted, I've made bold the words that become the keys to each different commentary's version of events. So the first thing is, Vayakilu Moshe Vaharon et HaKahal. HaKahal, you see there, is made into bold. They gathered together the community. 
the whole community. El Salah in front of the rock. Vayomer lahem, Moses said to them, Shim'u na hamorim, listen carefully, you rebels. Hamina From this um, rock, I will draw for you, we will draw for you water. Vayarem Moshe et yado, and Moses lifted up his hand. Vayach et hasela, and he hit the rock. Bemateu with his staff, pa'amayim twice. You see how many times I've highlighted a word. Each one of those highlights represents a different opinion of one of the commentaries. Here, I've got a survey of all the commentaries, and every single one of them is highlighted as it was in the Pasuk. Perushim shonimit mit makdim bemilim shonot bipsukim eile, each one of the commentaries focuses on a particular word in that pasuk in order to draw out some type of explanation as to what it is that Moses did that um, was considered sinful. First one is Hakel. Moshe nitztaval asov et ha'eda zotomeret rak hagdolim. Moses brought together the Congregation, Eda, and that means only the adults, Asaf et Hakahal. Sorry, he was only com- he was commanded to only bring together the adults, Asaf et Hakahal. However, he brought together the entire congregation, Kolel Gam Gedolim Gam Ketanim. That means he gathered together everybody. You know, sometimes you say to your kids, you know, this is a conversation for adults, please leave the room. I mean, we've heard of that. Not every conversation is appropriate for everyone to hear. Not every piece of information has to be fully opened up to every single person. This was a, for whatever reason, he'd been told to bring together the Ada, and he brought together the Kahal. So his sin was that rather than simply tell the group that it was relevant to, he told everybody, he generalized um, his information. That the Balhaturim, if you see that in parentheses, the Balhaturim believes that that was his sin. Shimu, this is another version. Moshe tziva al Hashema, vakadosh baruchu tzivahu al hachanat chush haraut v'dibarta el hasela leinehem. So Moshe Rabbeinu made a mistake. He said Shimu na hamorim. He said, listen, and God said, didn't say to him get them to listen. He said, get them to see. In the same way as um, had happened at Mount Sinai, Moshe HaYatzarich Lomar LeBeit Yisrael, LeBnei Yisrael, Reuna, not Shimuna, Reuna, Bedomeh LeMatam Torah, Sha'am Ra'ah Et HaKolot. If you remember that at Mount Sinai, they saw, as it were, the sounds. Somehow this had to be a visionary thing, not something which was heard, wasn't auditory, it was visionary. Something had to be seen. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu said, Shimu na hamarim, Shimu. Shimu was a mistake. That's according to the Meshech Chochmah. He says that that was the sin of Moshe Rabbeinu. Hamarim, rebels. Moshe natal tzad haragzanut. Rambam says that um, Moshe Rabbeinu got angry with them and he referred to them as rebels. Right? That's not an appropriate thing to do. These people were thirsty. They wanted water. They wanted to drink. What's wrong with that? Don't refer to them as rebels. Moshe zilzel b'chvodan shel Yisrael. Abarbanel adds something. He says he offended the honor of Israel by referring to them as marim. Another sin according to the vet. Uh, this is either the Rambam or Barbanel. Hamin. Yisrael hevinu et she'elat Moshe k'mashma'o. The Jewish nation understood the question of Hamin HaSel HaZeh according to its uh, literal interpretation. Lemor, to say, Ech yachol liyot she'asel HaZeh yotzi lachemayim. How is it possible that this rock will deliver water to you? Umitoch kach hesikwa she'ashem lo yachol lotzi mayim in HaSel and perhaps at that moment, the Jewish nation thought to themselves, mm, maybe God can't deliver us water from this particular... It's not naturally possible. And they, for a moment, they had this, this thought that God cannot um, 
resolve the situation by giving them water from this rock because of the way that Moshe Rabbeinu had expressed it. Hamin hasela hazeh. This is according to the opinion of Ramosha Akon Hasfardi, and it's also it's brought actually in the Ibn Ezra. The Chizkuni, and also another of the opinions that's brought in the um, in the Perush, in the commentary of Rabbeinu Yosef Bechorshar, um, says a very similar idea as well. That the um, the problem here was that the way the question was expressed would um, just for a moment add doubt or create doubt in the minds of the Jewish nation as to whether or not God could actually achieve this objective. Hasela hazeh. Bnei Yisrael ratzu shemoshe yotzi lahem ma'im misela acher, u'moshe et akesh lotzi davka misela mesuyam. So Moshe Rabbeinu should have said to them, you don't need to bring water from any rock. And that's in fact what the Jewish nation expected. They didn't think it was a particular, there wasn't a magical rock. This wasn't some type of supernatural rock that existed that was magic. Any rock, if God wanted to produce water, could produce water. And yet, Moshe Rabbeinu said, Hamin hasela hazeh. He specified it. Not see. Zotameret. Rak The implication here is the word not see means only I and Aaron can actually deliver water from this rock. We will be the ones who will give you water. And perhaps as a result of this, the Jewish nation believed that it wasn't God that gave them the water, but it was Moses and Aaron that had given them this water. And this is Rabbeinu Hananel as brought down in the Ramban. We're going to come back to that opinion later. Vayarem. And Moses lifted up his hand. Chet Oshel Moshe, the sin of Moses was, He smote, he hit the rock, as if only by hitting it very hard, the water would come out. He could have likely tapped it. He could have just nudged it with the mateh, but he hit it with all his force. And again, the implication was that you need to hit something, or he needed to hit something in order to achieve this miraculous um, result. Vayach. He hit it. Moshe, he This is the most famous of all the um, versions of Moses' sin, that he, instead of speaking to the rock at, as he had been instructed by God, this is what Rashi tells us, um, he hit the rock instead. So he turned, he diminished, he, um, he uh, somehow minimized the miracle by hitting the rock instead of speaking to it had he spoken to the rock and it produced water that would have been a far greater miracle you see here the many shot in the midrash Haggadah, rashi rashbam rabbi yosef kaspi rabbi nemuyuchus ben rabbi Leo, shadal rabbi yitzhak arama rabbi shamshir rafal hersh all of those opinions accord with this idea that he he did something different than God had instructed him to do. He hit the rock instead of speaking to it. Bematehu, with his staff, Hakadosh Baruch Hu Amar LeMoshe, Lakachat Et Mate Aharon. Somehow we can derive the meaning of the Pesukim to mean that God had instructed him to take Aaron's staff to um, do this miracle. Hamatel Milifnei Hashem. This was a miraculous staff. You remember in last week's Parsha in Korach how um, this particular staff of Aaron had grown uh, flowers, buds, and almonds. This was the staff that God had wanted Moses to use in this particular incident in the episode of the, uh, um, of the uh, Meimariva. And he hadn't used it. He'd used his own one. It says, Matehu. Um, this is the Kliakaris Pshat. That he used his own. He changed it. God had asked him to use Aaron's one and he had used his own. Pa'amayim, twice. Ikar b'mashe moshe hika He should have hit it only once and then it would have produced water. But he hit it twice. By hitting it twice, he therefore had um, uh, angered God. Somehow, 
he had not followed God's instruction, that was the sin. You see here the many variations that are contained in all the different commentaries as to what it is that he did wrong. Again, if you listen to the shir that I did a couple of years ago, whenever it was, you'll hear much more detailed explanation of each of these commentaries and to why they think that their version is correct and the other versions are not correct. Um, I'm just going to continue. There are other reasons that are given as to what the sin of Moses was. They are not directly implied by the verse. For example, the explanation of Rabbi Sadia Gaon. That Moses and Aaron came to the tent of meeting, the Ohel Ma'ed, the sanctuary in front of the congregation, Kidmut Borchim, as if they were running away from the problem, Hashem, and this was a grave desecration of God's name. Instead of facing them down and looking them in the eye and dealing with the problem when it when it arose, they ran as it were, to, uh, uh, to, for refuge uh, to the Ohel Mo'ed, and that was what they did wrong, according to Rabbi Sadia Gaon and Rabbi Yosef Albo. And there are, in fact, I mentioned this earlier um, when I quoted Shadal, in fact, there are those who say that he didn't just do one sin, he did a multiplicity of sins. He did many sins. What were they? According to the Rosh, that the sins of Moses were five. There were five sins that he committed at this time. First of all, he gathered together the entire congregation. He hit the rock. That he called them rebels. He, he hit it, he hit the rock twice. And this other version, which is that he said, Should should we bring out water from the from the rock? In other words, it wasn't just one sin, it was indeed five sins, according to the Rosh. There's a book that Rabbi Mendel Kasher um, brought out, um, began to produce. Uh, um, in the 1950s, I believe, um, a fantastic uh, collection, compilation of Midrashim, one of the Midrashim that are brought in the Torah Shalema, Neymar Shemosher Chata there is a medrash which actually is very specific. That means it's a chazal. It's not one of the medieval commentaries. This is a chazal that says that Moses sinned four times. How do we know that he sinned four times? So we don't exactly know what the sins were, but there are four mentions of the sin in the Torah. First one it says, the second one is Meritem, the third one is Lokidashtem, and the fourth one is Ma'altem. So we have four different um, words that are used regarding Moses. Sin, so we know he sinned four times, even if we don't know what the sin was. So we have here a Midrashic source that talks about Moses sinning, as it were, four times. And this final paragraph on page one of your source sheet, Yesh parshanim acherim sheikarachet so there are other commentaries that say, actually, we're, we're mistaken. This sin had nothing, actually, what to do, to do with um, the uh, May Mariva. It wasn't to do with this particular incident. This was the culmination, as it were, of Moses' leadership. It was at this moment that the message was delivered by God to Moses that he wouldn't come into um, Eretz Yisrael. So the truth is, the main sin of Moses was in that he had dispatched the spies and that whole incident with the Meraglim that we read about two weeks ago in Parshat Shlach Lecha, but by the way, which had happened 40 years earlier. And why did Aaron not go into the Promised Land? Because he had been involved in the Masa Egel, in the Golden Calf. So we know there are many different opinions as to what it is that Moses did wrong in the story of the Meraglim, in the story of the spies. But either way, we know that that is the focus of his sinning. So one of the things which Abarbanel says is that yes, he sent Meraglim, and yes, that 
God had conceded, but the truth is Moshe Rabbeinu could have nipped it in the bud and just said, listen guys, we're not sending spies. It's not an appropriate thing to do. God has said that we're going to the land and we're going to go and everything's going to be okay. Like everything until now has been okay, so it will continue. So the mere fact that he enabled the story of the Miraglim was a sin that resulted in his um, not being allowed into the promised land. Lefia Barbanel at according to Arbarbanel himself, that pshat was according to his Rebbe, according to him, um, the Arbarbanel himself, Moshe Lenidrash. So, so the, the point is that even though the Miraglim had been permitted by God, the fact that he broadened this mission well beyond its parameters, that is what he did that was wrong, and that was the source of his sin. So this is a, a, a very nice idea. It's a medrash. Um, it's quoted by Yeshaya Leibovitch. And he says that it's not appropriate for an entire nation that's led by a particular individual to be punished, as they were by, as a result of the Miraglim, and that the leader isn't punished. So if you're a leader, if you're the captain of the ship, you go down with your ship. Moshe Rabbeinu being the leader of the Jewish nation at the time of the story of the Miraglim, none of those people alive at that time made it into the promised land. It's not appropriate for all the people that you led not to be allowed and you be allowed. So that's, it's based on a medrash, it's brought down in Yeshai Lebovich. It's not very nice that Moses should be the only one of his entire generation that would be allowed in and nobody else would be allowed. So we have here, I, I told you it was a survey and I told you I would run through it. There's much more to say about each and every single one of the commentaries I quoted, each one of whom obviously spends quite some time defending and advocating their particular version of events. I've just presented it to you because that's the baseline. I've presented you a baseline, the platform for the rest of the shear. Let's continue on page two of the source sheet. We're going to look, uh, and I've listed here, um, I've put it together in English, uh, a number of questions that still need to be answered, even though I've dealt with every aspect of it. Okay, so even though we have, I have given you a very broad picture of all the different opinions about what happened and why Moses was punished together with his brother Aaron, we still need a number of questions to be answered. Let me read it to you. Despite the many interpretations, there are still a number of questions that are not properly addressed, never mind resolved. The first one is as follows. What exactly was Aaron's sin? According to the vast majority of commentators, Moshe was the one who sinned. Aaron's sin is never mentioned. So why was he punished? Why wasn't Aaron allowed into the, into the land? Why was it only his brother? Well, I'm sorry, why wasn't it only his brother? It should have been only Moses who was punished. He was the proactive one in that story. Why was Aaron punished as well? That's the first question. The second question, in Devarim. So you remember that the book of Deuteronomy is all a, basically it's a list, it's a collection of sermons, of speeches, of addresses by Moses to the nation before they went to Eretz Israel, before he died. So in Devarim, Moshe blames the people for the punishment he has received, mentioning it three times. I've got here all the quotes. Gam bihitanaf Hashem biglalchem. Because of you, God was incensed with me too. That's in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. The next pasuk. Vayit aber Hashem bi lema'anchem. God was wrathful with me, was very angry with me. Do you know why? Lema'anchem. On your account, because of you. Third, third one. Vashem hitanaf bi al divreichem. And God was angry with me for your words, for something you did. So three times, Moshe Rabbeinu says that the punishment that he received as a result of God's anger was misdirected. Because the fact is that it was their fault. It was the nation's fault, not his fault. 
What did you bother me with water for? Why were you coming to drive me crazy? Why were you gathering up against me, you rebels? It's your fault that I'm not going into the land. Does that sound nice? Does that sound right? Doesn't sound right. How is it possible that Moshe blamed the nation for his failure? Surely the very essence of leadership is that a good leader succeeds and makes the right choices even when events conspire against him. Don't blame your group. Don't blame your nation. You're the leader. The buck stops with you, right? That's the famous sign on President, um, um, which president was it? It wasn't Roosevelt. Truman, President Truman on his desk had a little sign, the buck stops here. The buck stops with Moshe Rabbeinu. He is the last call. Don't blame them. It's not their fault. That's the second question. The third question, what exactly is the connection between the sin and the punishment? Why were Moshe and Aaron prevented from entering the land? Okay, you did something wrong, guys. Rap on the knuckles and you have to pay a fine and you're very naughty. Give them tzoras, right? Remember that Miriam got tzoras. I don't know. Find something. Really? How is this a fitting punishment for what they did wrong? So those are three questions that I've put in here in source four. I'm going to add another question that's not in the source sheet. It's a much broader question. It's a question of teshuva and forgiveness. What is one of the underlying principles, by the way, a principle that was really um, put together by Moshe Rabbeinu himself? We know that Moshe Rabbeinu created, after the sin of the golden calf, this idea that you can do teshuva, right? We all know that. So he did teshuva. He said, I'm very, very sorry. Va'etchanan el Hashem, right? It's the second parsha of Devarim. Va'etchanan el Hashem. How come God didn't allow him to go to the land? How does that make any sense? How does it make any sense? He did teshuva. Surely when you're forgiven, the slate is wiped clean. You did the right thing. Why was he punished? It's a very difficult question. Moshe Rabbeinu, we're not talking about an ordinary bloke. We're not talking about some, you know, Joe Smith. We're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu here. He did teshuva. He said, I'm very, very sorry. It's one of the, the most powerful expressions of prayer in the Torah. I begged you. I implored you. And what did God say? No. You may not go to the Holy Land. Why? There's something going on here. You've got to understand that there's something more going on here. Hold on a minute. So if we look at source number five, we'll see that the key to understanding this seminal moment is to truly understand the attitude of the nation to the leadership of Moshe and Aaron against the background of their complaints from the day they left Egypt. Until this moment, 40 years later, of the May Mariva incident in the 40th year, just before their entry into Canaan, we really need to understand what the relationship was between the nation and Moshe and Haran. If we really want to get to the bottom of this story, we need to appreciate the dynamic of the relationship between the leadership, Moshe and Haran. Moshe was the political leader, and Haran was the religious or spiritual leader, right? This was the dynamic. He led all the spiritual duties or the, um, you know, the duties of the Mishkan. Moshe Rabbeinu made all the big decisions regarding the day-to-day uh, -day life of the nation. They were the leaders. How did the nation relate to them? Now, starting with the very first incident after leaving Egypt on the shores of the Red Sea, we see a pattern beginning to develop. Pharaoh chased after them with a mighty army, and they are in danger of being obliterated. A danger, by the way, that they'd not faced in Egypt. So they were never in danger of being killed in Egypt. Yes, Pharaoh had, for a, a moment, he had been killing children, right? That wasn't the story throughout their period there. And certainly there was no 
um, genocidal threat against the Jewish nation when they lived in Egypt. They were slaves. I mean, they had a very tough life, but they weren't going to be killed. Now they're going to be killed. What did they do? What did the nation do? Instead of turning to God for help or to Moshe, for him to intercede with God on their behalf, what did they do? They faced Moshe down with a bitter complaint. I'm going to read it to you. Vayomru el Moshe hamibli ein kvarim b'mitzrayim. And they said to Moshe, was it for want of graves in Egypt? Lekachtanu lamud b'midbar that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is it not this very thing that we told you in Egypt? Saying, let us be and we will serve the Egyptians. For it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What do you read in this Pasuk? This is the Jewish nation advocating for their survival in the face of imminent genocide. What are they saying? Look at the Pasuk carefully. What are they saying? What is the one thing that isn't mentioned in these Pasukim? God. Who took them out of Egypt? God, who are they saying took them out of Egypt? Moshe. They're not saying that God took them out of Egypt. They're saying, um, look what it says. What have you done to us that you took us out? You took us out of Egypt. Where's God in all this? So what are they saying to him? You made the problem. You sought the problem out. You're the one who brought us out. Now we're facing imminent death. You make sure we don't die. Where's God in this equation? What stands out in this sentence is the absence of God. Why are they attacking Moshe? What was going through their minds? Surely they knew that their predicament was not his fault. It's nothing to do with him. Look at what Shadal says, a fascinating piece. Shadal's a very interesting commentary, by the way. The Italians were a rule to themselves. He was um, very much a part of the Enlightenment, and yet a very traditional Jew. And he wrote this fantastic perush, this commentary on the Torah. It's so original. Flashes of brilliance there. Nobody looks at it today, because who wants to look at an Enlightenment scholar when studying the Torah? You want to look at traditional scholarship. Look at what he says. Fantastic. Is it possible to say that they saw all the things that happened to the Egyptians, all the miracles that occurred that were plagues in Egypt um, that affected the Egyptians and that they would somehow exclude God from that equation and they would think that Moshe Rabbeinu had done it? I mean, what exactly were they thinking? What's going through their minds? Vanachon Ledati says Shadal, if you want to really understand this, in my opinion, in those days, in that ancient um, his, historical moment, that particular era in history, what was it that priests could do in those days? Why did people subscribe? By the way, things haven't changed. Why do we consider somebody to be a holy man? Because they can do things that ordinary people can't do, right? That's, that's what goes through your mind. A holy man, you're going to go to a rabbi and you're going to say, I want you to pray for my child, let's say. On the most basic level, I want you to pray for my child. Why would you want the rabbi to pray for your child, and you won't pray for your child. No, I'll also pray for my child, but then why ask the rabbi? Because somehow the rabbi is holier, and he can achieve the objective, is more likely 
that if he prays for your child, that the child is going to become better. That's on the most basic level, and we all understand that, the psychology of it. In ancient times, it was much more powerful than that. They would go to the temple, and the priests were like magicians, right? Illusionists. They could do all kinds of things, and people said, well, of course they can do them. They're connected to God. They have this connection with God that they are able to achieve incredible things because of their closeness to God. But what's God's role in that? How do we understand God's role if these people are able to achieve miraculous results? What, what is God's role? Look what Shadal says. Gambelot sivui hakel atzmo. They are able to achieve these results even if God has not directly instructed them to do so. They have powers. That's the word we would use in English. They have godly powers. God has given them the right, as it were, to do certain things, even, as it were, if he doesn't know about it or hasn't directly involved himself in it. Be very clear that God has given these people the right to do the things that they do without direct involvement. That was the belief system in those days. That's what it meant to be a priest. That is what it meant to be a man of God. You have the ability, godly, divine abilities, and God just lets you get away with them and do them. Do you see where this is going? It's fascinating. It was perfectly possible for them to believe that all the miraculous things that happened in Egypt, the ten plagues and anything that happened to their benefit had, as it were, their energy, the source of their energy was divine. It, of course that's what they believed. They did not believe in God. But, So Moses becomes the instrument of divine power without divine instruction. Are you with me? You can be a priest of God who can use God's power to achieve certain objectives, and God is not directly involved. So the Jewish nation believed that Moses was a man of God. He was a priest. He, was, he had divine power. And he brought them out of Egypt using that divine power. But that's not what God wanted. Now read the Pasuk again. Now suddenly it makes a lot of sense. By Yomru el Moshe. They said to Moses, Are there not enough? Um, graves in Egypt, and you took us out to die in the wilderness. What is it that you did to us? That you took us out of Egypt. Of course it's nothing to do with God. Now that they're facing imminent death. Oh my gosh, Moshe, you're so fantastic. You achieved the exodus, that you redeemed us from Egypt. But now we're all going to die. What did you need to do that for? Very clever, Moshe. In other words, even though they knew that God was involved, it was divine power in the hands of Moses. Human beings had the power to achieve divine results because God had given them power. That was the mentality, that was the psychology of that ancient historical moment. That's what people believed in those days. So they could ascribe to Moses divine powers and yet say that God had nothing to do with it. Let's look at source number seven on page three. There were seven separate episodes when the Jewish nation complained after they left Egypt and before they came to Eretz Canaan. On seven separate occasions, the nation complained to Moses about their living conditions and or what they perceived as life-threatening situations. Once before the Red Sea, which we've just seen, and six times in the wilderness. You know, I, I'm going to give you one example, the Slav, right? 
they wanted to have meat, they didn't have meat, and then all the birds came and they had meat. So that was a, a complaint they had against Moses. I'm not going to go through each one of those seven um, because I th- we've gone through one, but the other six are not relevant, except for on the last occasion, the focus of their complaints was the leadership, either Moshe or Moshe and Aaron. So it was always focused, it was always, and now we understand why, we're beginning to understand why. It was always about Moses and Aaron doing the wrong thing. On one occasion, they even excluded God from the equation, uh, equation completely. Vayomru alehem b'nei Yisrael, mi yiten mutenu b'yad Hashem b'eretz Mitzrayim. So at some point, they actually said, this is what Shadal was telling us, but now we see it in a pasuk. They said to Moshe and Aharon, the Bnei Israel said to them, Mi yiten mutenu b'yad Hashem b'eretz Mitzrayim. If only we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt. Ki otseitem otanu el hamidbar hazeh lhamit et kol ha-kahal For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole congregation. In other words, God wanted us to stay in Egypt and we could have died at his hand there. But you're the ones who are causing us to die here in the wilderness. So somehow they've managed to create in their own minds a division between Moses and God. The implication is that God had nothing to do with their dire predicament. It was all Moshe and Aaron's fault, as if it was their idea to free the nation from bondage in Egypt, not God's. Therefore, Moshe and Aaron were to blame for everything that had gone wrong in their lives, and it was them who needed to sort it all out, not God. We don't want to complain to God. We're complaining to you because it's all your fault. This also explains the shocking sin of the golden calf, after all. What would compel the nation to abandon God so soon after he had taken them out of Egypt and given them the Torah? Why would they complain? Why would they create a golden calf? What did he tell them in the Ten Commandments? You're not allowed to have idols. It's the second of the Ten Commandments. You're not allowed to create pagan gods. If one examines what they said, it becomes clear that the sin was based on Moshe Rabbeinu, not God. Look at this pasuk, it's in Shemot, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who shall go before us. Why? For that man Moses who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. The creation of the golden calf wasn't the creation of an alternative to God. It was a creation of an alternative to Moshe, because Moshe is the agent of God. Now we need a new agent of God. Do you understand what happened here? The Egel, the golden calf, was simply a, 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 a replacement for Moshe. They need someone who's, or something that's going to continue in Moshe's way. They misunderstood Moshe's role in this situation. And says the Akedat Yitzchak, look at source 8. The cult of Moses had its roots in Egypt. Ani Omer, ki gadlu Because the nation that left Egypt grew up among Egyptians, v'lamdu masehem, and they learnt from their ways, The Egyptian, this was the, this was the floor of paganism to require a medium between the heavenly spheres and the earthly domain. That's the whole concept of paganism. Not that God is replaced, but that God is represented. That we need somehow to have a tangible medium between the heavenly spheres and the earthly domain. So for that reason, Moses was always suspected, whether by many or whether by few. And on that basis, they believed that Moshe was such a medium. He was a sort of 
an emanation of God in the earthly sphere, and he had the ability to beat Egypt's divine power, whatever that was, and to allow the Jews to emerge. But he was a flawed God, as it were. In other words, every time they complained against him, it's because they found fault in Moshe as a divine medium, not because they're finding fault with God. In their minds, they could reconcile that with the concept of monotheism. Do you see what I'm saying? They're not that they believe Moshe is a god. Moshe is an agent of God, but sometimes he gets it wrong. So now we get, look at source 9. Uprooting the cult of Moshe and Aaron becomes a priority. In summary, the episodes all indicate that the nation believed Moshe and Aaron had essentially acted on their own initiative with God in the background. They had cleverly instigated the exodus from Egypt, that means Moshe and Aaron, and shepherded the people through the wilderness, overcoming challenges of every kind. The problem with this belief was that it was liable to result in the deification of Moshe and Aharon. They become gods, even if there are complaints against them. By the way, gods in paganism don't always get it right. Even gods can fight with gods in idolatry, right? Because, you know, they're not really god. They are, they have all the flaws of a human being just with divine power. How could it, how would it be possible to uproot this belief Prove to them that Moshe and Haran were merely agents of God, according to his, acting according to his instructions. How would it be possible to turn Moshe and Haran into human beings? How would that be possible? The only way to do this was to show the nation that if Moshe and Haran did not fulfill the word of God, they would be severely punished. The punishment would demonstrate that even Moshe and Aaron were subject to God's authority, to the laws and commandments of God, just like everybody else. In other words, Moshe and Aaron had to be humanized. That needed to be achieved. It was a priority because throughout this period between the exodus from Egypt and the end of the 40 years, there'd been this misconception among the many, among the few, it makes no difference. That Moshe Rabbeinu either was deifying himself or was a deity. How do we change that perception? How do we make sure that we see Moshe Rabbeinu as a human being, an exalted human being, no question, but a human being? How are we going to do that? Turn to page four. Let's look again at the explanation of Rabbeinu Hananel. I mentioned it when I did the survey. Here's the Hebrew as quoted by Ramban. Hachet haya. What was the sin of Moses and Aaron? But Amram, when they said, Hamin hasela hazeh ma'im. We will bring water out of this rock. What they should have said was, God will draw water from this rock. When they said on another occasion, God will provide meat for you to eat. And it's possible that the nation imagined, they, they began to believe. It's possible that there was this misconception created by the slip of the tongue. The word Nazi instead of Yotzi Hashem is sufficient for the nation to begin to believe the myth, the legend that Moshe and Aharon are not human beings, they are deities. For all the complaints they have against them, these are not simple human beings, they are divine entities with divine powers themselves. Not God, they're not the agents of God. They're not doing as God instructed. Why? Because they could say, That's enough. Ambiguity is a danger to the Jewish faith. The greater the man or woman, the greater heed they must take when addressing matters that touch on faith. Moses and Aaron were the greatest leaders we had. 
But as representatives of God, they needed to ensure that anything they said or did conveyed that status to their audience, the nation. Particularly this generation, which was prone to misconceptions about agents of God, greater caution was needed so as not to allow any misconceptions to slip through. By suggesting that they would bring forth the water from the rock, Moses, and by implication Aaron, were reinforcing the mistaken view that they were in control, but they're not in control. Look at source 12. In his detailed warning in Devarim against idol worship, Moses included a short reference to himself. And now you're going to see why he refers to himself and the nation when talking about this sin of Meimariva. Vashem itanaf bi al divrechem vilti avri et hayarden. And God was angry with me for your words. What do we translate that as before? Because of the story of Meimariva, because you complained to me about Meimariva, about the Mayim, about not having water, I did whatever I did and God was angry with me. No, no, no. That's not what Moses is saying. What does it mean? The potential of your words about me means that I cannot lead you into the promised land. What is your words? It's not about the sun and the moon, Moshe was saying. Even he, Moshe, had been caught in the frame, posing a danger to monotheism through the ambiguity of his role as God's agent. In other words, What you say about me being a God caused God to be angry with me because I am a potential danger to monotheism. Me, Moshe Rabbeinu, wasn't my intention. But I have now become a potential problem for the future of Judaism, for the future of the monotheistic faith. He wasn't blaming the nation. He was explaining the problem to them so that they would understand why God had reached the conclusion he had regarding Moshe not going to Eretz Israel. How can I go to Eretz Israel? What's going to happen if I go to Eretz Israel? You're going to turn me into a god. And then the whole project is, uh, has to be aborted. Look at what the Meshechochma says. One of the reasons why God wanted Moses to die in the wilderness because they think that this man, Moses, brought water from the rock. Once the generation of the Midbar had died, everyone's gone. They, you know, and this legend continues to live. What are they going to remember about him? This is the guy who can achieve new supernatural results. He's a genius. Nothing he touches. He, whatever he does is miraculous. That's what they'll know about him. What's going to be the result? They're not going to remember the bad stuff. Even if they remember the bad stuff, it's not important. He will become a deified God person. It's happened in other religions. Without getting too specific, it's happened in other religions. Many other religions where a particular individual takes on a divine role. And where even criticizing that human being a human being that was born from a mother is tantamount to criticizing God. That is what needed to be prevented at this moment in Jewish history. They're about to enter into the land of Israel. They're about to take over the, the project you know, that began with the Exodus and in a sense reached its highest moment at Mount Sinai is now going to be realized and actuated actualized in Eretz Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be a barrier, is going to be a problem to, the, to achieving the objectives of that project because he himself could be considered a god. Let's finish the Meshe Chochma and then do the last piece. 
ובפרט בעת היות נערים לא נחקק בליבם לייחס זה אל השם. They won't associate the acts of Moshe Rabbeinu to God anymore. They're going to say, no, no, Moshe Rabbeinu is the God. Asher Moshe kore bishmo medaber elav tamid. Why? Because Moshe Rabbeinu is in contact with God. God is somewhere else. He's in heaven. Moshe Rabbeinu is the God on earth. He speaks to God all the time. He is the one. So God was concerned. God was concerned that at that moment when they enter into the land and Moshe leads them into the land, the culmination of everything that had be, they'd been leading up to, that he would himself be considered a God by the nation, it would destroy the entire purpose of the Exodus and of the revelation of Mount Sinai. And finally, why did Moshe and Haron get that specific punishment of not going into Eretz Yisrael? Look at source 14. Hanukudah ha'achrona sh'ra'u'i l'itbonen ba hi hazika ben chata'am shal Moshe v'Haron l'ben ha'onesh i ha'knisa la'aretz. The last thing that we really need to address is to understand the connection between what they had done wrong or what had happened and the result which was that they were not allowed entry into the Holy Land. You have to understand that everything that Moses did in the wilderness was miraculous, supernatural. What's going to happen when they get into the land? It's back to normal. It was back to what it is with ordinary human beings. You're going to farm the land. You're going to harvest the produce. Not like it was when Moshe Rabbeinu was in charge. Look what it says. In the wilderness... Where did they get their water? From a rock, from the earth. Where did they get their food? From the heaven. But when they get to the land of Israel, it's always it's going to be reversed. It's going to be according to the natural way. What's the natural way? The water comes from the heaven, from above. What's the bracha we make on bread? It's the opposite of what was going on in the wilderness. What happened when they, went, they needed stuff in the wilderness? What did they do? They went to complain to Moses and Aaron. And then they got their stuff, whatever it was they were complaining it, but complaining about. And even though sometimes they didn't quite, it wasn't right for them to complain to Moses and Aaron, God gave it to them nevertheless. You know why? Because the fact that God gave them stuff in the wilderness wasn't because of something that they had done right. It wasn't a reward for things that they have done. The main reason they received it was because of the merit of their leaders, Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. You're listening to this? Miriam was the water, right? Um, Moshe, I can't remember which one it was. Moshe was the clouds, and Aaron was the mon, or the other way around. They had three, three different sources of merit that enabled them to survive 40 years in the wilderness. But when they get to the Holy Land, to Eretz Yisrael, it's going to be completely different. Why would they get the things that they get? The food, the water? Because of the things that they've done in their own merit. We say it every day in Shema. Look at this quote. Vahaya im Shamoa tishmu'u el mitzvotai. 
And it will be, if you truly listen to my commandments, that I command you today, I will give the rain in your lands. I'm not giving it to you because Moshe Rabbeinu is a holy man. I'm giving it to you because you've done the right things. And by the way, if you complain, you probably won't get it. It's a completely different paradigm. The paradigm of the wilderness worked in the wilderness. You had a Moshe and Aaron and a Miriam. And as a result of them, they had miraculous food and miraculous water and miraculous protection. Now they're going into Eretz Israel. What are they going to think if they go into Eretz Israel and Moshe Rabbeinu is, is at the head? And Aaron HaKohen is the Kohen Gadol. What are they going to think if things go wrong? What are they going to think? Oh, let's go and complain. It worked in the Midbar, but it's not going to work in Eretz Israel. What does that mean? That Moshe Rabbeinu can't be the leader in Eretz Israel because it's going to be completely misleading. He would be the wrong leader. It's totally different. Times have completely changed. Yisrael hun midbar hanhaga nisit. In the wilderness, they were used to miraculous events. And everything they received was as a result of the fact, oh, do you know who's our leader? Moshe Rabbeinu. Things have gone wrong, no problem, knock on his door. Moshe, things are wrong, we need your help. There's a complete confusion about the role of Moshe and Aaron and leadership as a result of what went on in the wilderness. By the way, it worked perfectly in the wilderness, but it would never work in Eretz Israel. As a result of this confused picture of who Moshe and Aaron were, that would result in them treating Moshe and Aaron as gods when they came into the land. It would be automatic because things are going to go wrong. In the conquest of the land of Canaan, we know things went wrong. What would be their first point of call? Are they going to say, Hashem help us? Or are they going to run and knock on Moshe Rabbeinu's door? They needed to make this change. They needed to evolve from being dependent on Moshe and Aharon as the agents of God to being dependent on God in an ordinary, normal situation. But Parshat Meimiriva, Chizek Moshe et emunatam hamusulefet shelaam be'ed shamar haminasela zenotzilachemayim. Unfortunately, Moshe Rabbeinu made the mistake of saying haminasela hazenotzilachemayim, and he reinforced this misconception about his role as the um, as the leader of the Jews by somehow conveying the idea that he was a divine being. He wasn't merely a, an agent, but he himself, ha, himself had the divine power to make differences in people's lives. And therefore the punishment or the consequence of them behaving in that way, both of them being involved in this incident where they were their role could be misconstrued was that they could certainly not lead the nation into the land of Israel. Because in Eretz Israel, they were going to be led entirely through natural means. We're going to leave it here for today.